0: So, Bob, I have a bunch of news stories here that I thought we would read and comment on in an educational yet humorous and conversational way. What do you say, Bob?
1: I say that when we do this, we, we find ourselves
0: in all kinds of weird places. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkonda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your old friend from graduate school, also a
1: therapist here in town in Seattle.
0: Yeah, and you have some open spots available in your practice, right? I do, yeah. So if you want to hire Bob, you can email him at BobGettle, Bob at BobGettle.com. Yeah. Or go to BobGettle.com. Yeah, yeah. And okay. feel free to phone, too. I actually answer the phone and return calls promptly. You, ah. know,
1: you know, have you noticed a lot of people in our profession do not do that?
0: Yeah, I do, too. Uh, it's just something, I just, I hate thinking about someone out there. Yeah. Waiting for me to call them back. I know. I yeah. know. It's terrible. Yeah, but yeah, a lot of therapists. It'll just be like two weeks later, and it's like it's not hard to you know respond. Yeah. Um. Okay. So this article is titled "Why God Isn't My Therapist," huh. uh, and just to read written by um, Jola Szymanska on the website Alitia. There's a quote here, Uh, looking down. Uh, These readers wanted to emphasize that faith in God, or the fact of having a relationship with him, and taking care of that faith through retreats or the rosary, are enough for us not to have any emotional difficulties or problems. First Mm -hmm. of all, if that were so, no believing Christian... So basically, what this person is writing about is... They've run into some people who are, you know, some some Christians who are saying, "I don't need therapy; I have God." Oh, and what this person is saying is, is that that is um, not an accurate way to think. Hmm. Uh, and they say, first of all, if that were so, no believing Christian would suffer from depression, and they would quickly bounce back from feeling down. Well, that's a little, that's a little one dimensional. Yeah, what do you mean? I mean, I mean, I don't think,
1: I don't think. Uh, Anybody that's sort of, uh, I think that um, pain is part of being alive and people get depressed and um, having a faith in God is not going to necessarily mean that I don't expect ever to have pain or suffering. I mean, come on, man. So I think her assertion that um, is sort of apples and oranges.
0: Right. I think that there are a number of different camps worth delineating, like There's certainly a camp of people, and Scientologists are this way too, who are so, I don't know, indoctrinated into their uh, religion or way of thinking that they're threatened by or by dogma. Right. uh, Mental health uh, is considered to be um, evil or at the very least not valid or. Or or perhaps um, in opposition to faith. Right. Yeah. That they perceive somehow. Yeah. If you go to a therapist, you're being, you know, oppositional to your faith, right? Right. Um my dog is freaking out about something. Probably someone delivering something. Is my guess. Um and uh uh so you know, her name's Chloe the dog, right? Yeah. Did you ever watch Smallville? No, I never did. Oh. Did you hear about that that new um that big controversy with that um, multi-level marketing thing, Nexium, where Keith Raniere and Allison Mack, uh, blah, blah, Oh, blah.
1: I did hear about that. Oh,
0: my. That was a craziness. With the branding and the yeah. sex cult and all oh, that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeesh. well, She Alice, was like recruiting or something? Yeah. Yeah. Recruiting other young women, young women into this sex cult that was basically blackmailing these young women to stay in this uh. sex cult and having sex with this sex cult leader. Yeah. Well, Allison Mack, she's famous for being on Smallville and playing this character named Chloe. Oh. And Chloe is named after that character. Oh. Uh, so, um, hopefully my dog Chloe isn't involved in a sex slave scandal anytime soon. Your dog Chloe's really cool. Well, That's what they all say about sex cult leaders. <laughs> um. And recruiters. Yeah. So, um. She's still barking. Hopefully someone will attend to that. But the – so there are some people who – and I think what this author is writing against is just like, if you believe your faith is going to solve your schizophrenia or your major depression or your panic disorder or something, um, you're probably deluding yourself, you know. Um, Or that just praying to God that your marriage isn't going to fall apart. You know, isn't probably, you know, gonna work. By itself is not sufficient. By itself is not sufficient, right? Yeah. And so, well, how,
1: how can, look, I get the thing about schizophrenia. It ain't gonna cure schizophrenia. Right. But how do I know that prayer for some marriages isn't gonna be enough? And look, this is me talking. I'm not, um, nobody would accuse me, uh, nobody would say about me that I was um, spiritually oriented. I'm, I'm an atheist. At the same time, though, I do not like it when people, disparage people of faith. I, get, I think that's just bad manners at the least.
0: Right. And uh, often a, uh, it, it's it's the foundation of that is that they don't understand people with religion. Yeah. They have a characterization, a straw man of what it is to be religious.
1: Straw man. That yeah. is a good phrase for it.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah. So um, while I would
1: say, you know— uh, there's good reason to to um, seek marital treatment if you're having marital distress. I don't know that for some marriages, prayer would not be sufficient, and I would be loath to make any kind of generalization that it, no, that's not going to do it. You know, for somebody, it's probably out there doing it right now.
0: Right. For somebody. Right. So prayer, the action of prayer, can yeah. be as many things. Yeah. One is is that it could just be asking for a supernatural um uh intervention you know? yeah please god make my make. husband yeah. love me right. you know um but it can also be like a conversation with god like yeah. i'm really struggling god yeah. please help me give me the strength yeah um to get through this um which what you know as you're talking to god you just get this impression that god's telling you you should probably get help or you should probably yeah. uh, tell your husband how you feel or something right. And you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a better person, right? You know, um, or as you're praying, you just get this sense, like, you know, you know, now that I've got this off my chest, I think I've been neglecting my kids throughout this process. Maybe I need to right. rededicate myself to being, you know, with the strength of God to be a better parent today or something. Yeah, those are you know, legit uh, outcomes, positive outcomes yeah. from from purely praying. Right? Yeah. Um. So so, there's that group of people that might just be like, um, religion will save me. You know, all I have to do is ask God to take away my schizophrenia. Okay, okay, I get it. And yeah, um, and so that you know you can criticize, uh, but there's a whole group of other people who will say, I don't need therapy. I have God. Yeah. One because they probably they might not have problems that need a therapist. Well, great point. Yeah. And you know when they say I have God, that means a that means a lot more than what. People might think it means yeah it, it it could it mean to a lot of people who have a very strong faith and a strong practice, what it means is praying all the time. it means going to church all the time, it means communing all communing. the time, it means emotionally expressing yourself, it means um, I don't know giving of yourself to other people, yeah. putting things in perspective. Um, and not letting things get to you, handing, th- you know, there's this phrase of like, I'm going to give it to God. Yeah. I give this to God. And atheists, some, will laugh at that and say, look, well, well, that's dumb. Yeah. But the action well. of of saying, it, it's, it'd be the same thing for a Buddhist to say, like, I'm releasing attachment to that. Right. Because I don't have control over that. Yeah. And so I'm not, it's, I'm only causing suffering by being attached to that. And so, hmm. uh Christians, will, they'll do that too. They'll just be like, I hand this to God because um, I don't have any control over that. Maybe
1: it's another way to express an attitude of acceptance.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a form of self-therapy. Which, I dig which acceptance. Is yeah. Right? So, I don't know. I, I think that it's a complicated thing. And, um, yeah. I like how you put it, though. Psychology Today, uh, article written by Michael Shiringa. How come these people don't have easier names for me to pronounce? Michael it's S. A conspiracy. Yeah. looks like a psychiatrist, uh, writes a article called The Dark Pool of Psychotherapy. Hmm. Have you heard of that phrase before? No. Yeah. I don't know if this person invented it, but essentially what he's referring to is like that um, when parents take their kids into therapy and the therapist doesn't communicate with the parents at all, oh. it's this dark pool of yeah. therapy. So uh, he writes here. In this book that he's uh, reviewing... The author described a case of a mother who was, in the author's opinion, overprotective. This mother was unhappy that she was not being told by the therapist what was going on during the therapy sessions with her young son. Mm-hmm. The mother finally confronted the therapist, quote, This is what I mean. You never say anything specific. What is he saying? What kind of play is he doing? What does he scream? Why does he scream in your office? Oh, my. The author of the book portrayed this mother as unenlightened, demanding, and unreasonable. I interpret this as the correct concerns of a reasonable parent. This mother's experience is not uncommon. I hear often from parents about therapists who are not transparent with them about their children's psychotherapy. What do you think about this, Bob? I think that,
1: um, boy, what do I think about that? It makes me really uncomfortable. I I wonder, though, I want to know what you think. I wonder if maybe um, when therapists are, you know, not transparent, if it's because they're uncomfortable with their own um, either uh, practice or skill set or, you know, they're anxious about their own performance. Performance, is that an okay way to put it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. That's, That's exactly my... So... You're kind of deferring to me because you've never treated. I kids. I don't
1: treat kids. Uh, well, once for a very brief time, and I wasn't any good at it. Okay.
0: Whereas in my early career, uh, you know, a third to a half of the clients that I saw were children and teenagers and their parents. Right. And so, yeah, and I and all of my supervisees or most of my supervisees are are seeing kids now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and I hadn't really come to that realization until recently mm-hmm. that so. For those of you out there that don't know, here's here's a, just a brief history on this whole thing. Th- psychotherapy originally was an individual practice, right? And was something that was you uh, separated the individual from the world and mm. from their family system, and you fixed them, and you sent them back into the world having been fixed. You know, similar to someone breaks an arm, you don't need to talk to the mom you just bring in the kid you fix the arm you send him back into the world that that was the this model right. that that we had for many many years and then family therapy comes along in the 70s and 80s becomes popular and they're like that doesn't work you you can fix a kid you send him back but the symptoms come back that that's what they started to observe and what they started to propose is that a lot of issues need to be treated by the whole family. You have to look, you have to, you have to look at everybody. They're In inter-
1: fact, interrelational.
0: Right. Yeah. In fact, the person who has the quote-unquote problems often is just expressing a family problem. Yeah, right. So, so there's that. But even though there were those astute observations and research to back this up, I mean, they've done outcome studies on various different presenting problems, addiction or uh, conduct disorder or... Um, other kinds of things, maybe even depression, schizophrenia, I think as well. I mean, it doesn't cure schizophrenia, but the symptoms are lesser, less severe if the whole family is involved in the treatment. You know, makes sense, right? Makes sense. Yeah. Um, even though that was all happening, uh, people continued to do this model for a number of reasons. One, I think because it's so much easier. I mean, as a therapist, if you just talk with a seven-year-old or play games with a seven-year-old in your office there's a very low chance of anything really annoying happening. Mm -hmm. You bring in the parents now, especially if it's parents and kid in the office with you, it, the chaos in the session is 10 times higher. There's so many, there's so many more things that are out of your control. So many more things that are happening that you feel compelled to comment on or control or do something about. And there are times when there are direct opposite um, goals in life. You know, the parent is like, I want my 14-year-old to do better in school. And the right. kid is like, I don't want to do better in school. So as a therapist, you're like, which goal do I go with? Yeah, right. you know? if, the kid, if the kid's just in the room and says, my mom is pressuring me to do well in school, then it's tempting to be like, okay, well, I can just help the kid uh, deal with or accept or learn how to communicate back or assert themselves back to their parents. If the parents come in and say, I need to get my kid to do better in school, then you talk with the parent about how to... But if they're both in the room, which conversation do you have? Yeah, right. You know? And it it gets very complicated, and so a lot of people avoid it. Even family therapists, by the way, well, yeah. will avoid it, because it's scary. Scary. So, so, um, so there's a lot of people still right now who will will do that. They'll just take the kid into the room, and they have this practice, which is kind of like the dominant practice in my anecdotal experience, where... They won't talk to the parents. Yeah. They actually won't want to talk to the parents, and yeah. they all, they also, for some people, they consider the parents kind of a nuisance. Yeah, like if you're asking about what's happening at therapy office, you're being overprotective. As you're this invading, person. yeah, you're you're an invade. You're you're anxiously enmeshing. You know, right. like you need to learn how to individuate. You know? <laughs> Pathologizing. Oh my god. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You you need to learn how to essentially not love your child. You know, not be concerned about your child. So. um, the uh there's nothing wrong there are certain times when that's not a bad model. If a child is, for example, in a abusive relationship with their parents, like you want a a place for the kid to be fully safe, safe and not have uh especially if the kid is like, I love therapy, I feel safe here, I'm so glad I'm talking to you. I do not want you talking to my parents. You know, and I've had kids say that to me. They'll just be like don't talk to my parents. And I'll be like, well, why? They're like, well, because I, I just, I need this. Like, this is the one place I can go where I know you're not going to go to my parents. And even if I'm like, well, what if I agree I won't say anything that will compromise you? They're like, still, I just don't want, I just don't, they're in every other aspect of my life. I don't want them in this aspect. Then I'll be okay, you know, it's fine. So there's some at, there's some times when I, myself, and I think it's, it's justified and clinically helpful to just tell the parents, I can't even talk to you. Like I'm I'm not even going to talk to you about anything. Um now if the kid is below twelve and below, then the parents have full full uh access to everything, which is also kind of another thing. It's just like that's another thing that a lot of parents don't know necessarily and right. a lot of therapists don't necessarily follow. Really, yeah. But even then, even you know, if you had a seven year old where you're working on something really specific and you're just like, I need full independence here and I need and I can't really, you know, involve the parents. Okay. Those are rare situations. Yeah, The vast majority of situations, from my experience, involving the parents is not only fine, but it enhances everything. My ability to go to the parents and say, like, uh, you know, your daughter, Jenny, is really struggling with her self-esteem. She doesn't exhibit that. What she exhibits at home is a lot of attitude. But really, my interpretation of that is she's she's very sad and very insecure, and she doesn't she feels very shameful about herself in general. Yeah. And when she rolls her eyes at you and won't talk to you, and then you get angry at her, it just compounds the whole thing and pushes her away and makes her feel even more shameful. She's 14. She's a child. She doesn't know how to communicate her feelings. And so let's put that in perspective. So the yeah. next time you see her roll her eyes, interpret that as an insecure child uh, being insecure and being shameful not as a you know defiant yeah. person who needs to be told that they're a piece of shit. Do you know right. what I mean? <laughs> or given the impression that they're a piece of shit. You know. And so that's a I I've had countless conversations with parents along those lines, helping them to understand their child so that they can have a more. I'm not telling the parents to back off. What I'm telling them is like, let me let me help you interpret your child's behavior so that we don't get into these weird loops where. The kid rolls their eyes, you yell at them, they feel even worse about themselves, which causes them to feel like they need to roll their eyes more, and, yeah. and it just goes round and round, round and round. round. Yeah. Um, so, and I can do that in five minutes with the parents at the beginning of the session. You know, the parents come in, I talk with them, the parents leave, the kid comes in, and I have the rest of the session with the kid. I don't even have to really interfere that much with the individual therapy for the kid. Um, and so when I talk to my supervisees, they will sometimes say Stuff like, so I just have this really annoying parent, you know, oh, that just keeps asking me these questions. And it's just like, you know, lay off. Like, let me do my job. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, wait a second. As you were saying, it's like the clinician, it, they're exhibiting a fear of that they're afraid they're not going to be able to justify what they're doing. And that fear is justified because. There's no class that a graduate student takes that involves a module on how to convince a parent that therapy is worth it for their kid. Yeah. But doesn't that seem like an obvious thing that should be taught to young therapists? Oh, yeah. Especially ones that work with kids? Yeah, absolutely. Like, how do you explain to a parent uh, that the therapy you're doing, what it's doing, and why it's doing, and how it's going to benefit the child and the family? That's a very complicated thing, actually. Uh one, because the conceptualization that underlies that conversation is actually quite advanced. Like the ability to say, I am uh playing Legos with a five-year-old boy uh who has been traumatized, you know, they they experienced domestic vi they saw domestic violence growing up. And so I am playing Legos with him as a way of... So this is me kind of explaining it to a parent. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes probably... I'm I'm terribly sorry to tell you this, but it probably takes six months just for me to... Just for Johnny to feel comfortable with me so that we can begin the work that needs to be done. Um, And it takes about six months for me to get to know how he plays in relation to his emotional world. If he were 25, I could ask him how he feels. He's five. I can't ask him how he feels. It's yeah. harder. You know, there, right. We can certainly begin the language around emotions, but it's so much more you know, nuanced with a five-year-old. He probably doesn't even necessarily know what he feels. And so, so I have to enter his world through play, and, it's, and it's, there's going to be six months where you know, it's just the beginning phase. And, and maybe it'll go faster, maybe it won't, but it's going to take some time. Then once, I, then once I get to know his, his emotional play world and he gets comfortable with me and we get into a routine, then I'm going to start playing with him, still playing Legos with him or something else, and we're going to start processing his emotions through the play as a proxy to what he actually experienced in real life. Again, if he were 25 or 45, he would just talk about the pain or fear he went through witnessing domestic violence in the, in the home. But with five-year-olds, typically that's not what can happen. And so the five-year-old, little Johnny, has to process that through the play. And I have to interpret what he's doing as metabolizing those emotions and getting validation. For example, if he is making something and then I start to play with, with him, near him, and he puts a boundary up and he says, no, this is, this is my Lego thing that I'm building. You build something over there. And I, after six months of getting to know his emotional world, I realized right now he's trying to assert power and boundary as a way of testing the world to see if he has the power to create his own safe space. Mm -hmm. And then in that moment, I intuit that I need to validate that and honor that and give him that space. Even if he's being dysfunctional, maybe he throws something at me and he says, get away. This is my corner. If I was a parent, I would say, "Don't throw. You got to play nice. Mm-hmm. You got to you got to play with me on this." As a therapist, I have learned through emotional, you know, work with him that this is his need, and so I through a corrective experience, I allow that to happen. I don't comment on the fact that he threw something at me. I get far away from him. I I'm still paying attention to him, and I and I comment something along the lines of I see that you really want your own space, and I honor that. Mm-hmm. You deserve to have your own space. Sometimes it feels good to have your own space, and I, thank you for telling me that you wanted your own space. And I'm guessing that that is therapeutic. I'm not sure, because you never know when you're playing with kids. You mm-hmm. just It's hard to say. But when kids are given those therapeutic moments— they start to calm down a little bit. They start to feel more powerful. They start to feel more higher self-esteem, more safety, and therefore less likely to lie, less likely to throw things, less yeah. likely to get um, angry. They get better sleep at night. You know, everything gets better from that. So that's me explaining, you know, therapy to a parent. What well, do you I'm think? I am playing you... Legos. Yeah, because that's if I'm a parent
1: and I don't have any background in this stuff, I just think. This high fluting dude's playing Legos with my kid. Right. Well, you know, I could do that. Right. Yeah.
0: It looks like nothing. Why am I why am I paying for this right. You know? Now wh- what I find a lot of novice therapists what, th- what they run into is yeah. they don't one, you know, know how to s- put it into words, but two, they don't even know what they're doing to begin with. Because they're they're so young, they're so novice yeah. that they don't even understand the theories behind why they're doing what they're doing, you know, which it is incumbent on me as a supervisor to teach them. Teach. Yeah. And then incumbent on me as a supervisor to uh, teach them how to talk to parents so you can, because the idea is, is like when a parent starts to confront you and say, what are you doing in there? That is a wonderful opportunity to explain to them what you're doing in there. Yeah. And if the parent, so, you know, let's say my role played explanation and the parents like, "Nah, not for me." Okay. No. You know, you're an inf- you you if you fully understand what my approach was and it's not for you. Fine. Yeah. I would rather know that now. Right. than avoid you and keep you out of the office and be annoyed by you, you know. Cuz the other thing is this parents don't really have a lot of power. You know, it's not like, you know, you go to a McDonald's and you walk up, you know, to the Cash register, and you're like, So, how much does a Big Mac cost? And the cash register person's like, Why should I tell you? Yeah, right. I don't know. And then you're like, Well, what's in a Big Mac? <laughs> These are a lot of fucking questions. Yeah. Well, you very easily have the ability to be like, Fuck this shit. I'm going next door to Burger King. <laughs> yeah. When you go to a therapist and you're like, Please explain to me what's happening. It's so hard to find a therapist that has time and is open and nearby your house and is covered by your insurance and, you know, blah, 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 blah that it's not really a a consumer-driven scenario. Like, you're sort of like, well, I guess – and plus, if all the child therapists in your community are doing this, then – as a parent, you have no power. You just said, "Well, I guess I'm just out of the loop right. now. I guess my, I guess this therapist is just gonna like not communicate with me." I, I, I hope therapy is helping. I have no idea if it is or not, or what this person is doing. But what do I know? They're yeah. the doctor. They're supposed to know. I find it to be incredibly unethical, uh, disempowering to people, irresponsible of therapists. And really, an outgrowth of of bad supervision and bad education. Yeah. Um, probably once I don't know every month I'll do exactly what we're talking about here with my supervisees. I'll just, I'll just, I'll role play. How do you tell? Because as I'm role playing, how you talk to the parents, they're actually learning theory too. You know what I mean? Right. Like the way I talked about six months of getting to know their emotional world. And then an, a, an anecdote about a corrective experience in play, right? Like they're like, "Oh, that's what play therapy—that's what using play in therapy is for." I, I guess I'm starting to kind of get that, right? Because a lot of young therapists, a lot of uh, novice therapists, have a really hard time with that symbolic world. You know, they're much more used to thinking yeah. about therapy as a advice-given, skill-based thing. You know, language-based, right? Yeah, or, or even more precisely, a skill-based thing. Really? Know? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of these interns, you know, I have. They work at agencies where that is the dominant oh, right. form. Like you don't, you don't create emotional experiences. Right, right. You don't, you don't heal people. You give them skills. Right. You know what skill? In fact, there's a lot of practices at these agencies now where um, they make the therapist type out the note with the client, you know, um, on the computer yeah. at the beginning and at the end. Oh, how awful! Right. I mean, like it's like you have four more people in the room, right? And it it makes it feel like impersonal. Oh, you know? totally. I mean, there's a way to do it to you know, like in a way that doesn't interfere. I think, but to force all the therapy because you know, I was taught like I could do that if I wanted to, mm-hmm. but I was also taught like you know, but if you don't want to, you know, you can do your notes after they leave if you want. You know, it's 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 your option. Anyway. And so when they're doing these these computer things, a lot of times the computer things will ask the therapist, what skill did you teach the client today? You know? Oh, man, that's a high demand moment. Well, and like that's assuming that that's what the client needs. Right. You know? There's so many things like like with my example with Johnny at the five-year-old. The first six months, it's just playing, just getting to know the kid. There's right. no skills. skills. There's no teaching. Plus, what are you going to teach a five-year-old, really? Yeah. I mean, there's some emotional regulation skills you could teach a kid that for would, sure. That undermines
1: a client's faith in the therapist. If if the question says, what skill did you teach and you didn't teach me a skill today, are you any good? Right. Because the implication is I'm filling out a form. It must be, you know, a valid basis to it.
0: Right. It basically yeah. forces everyone to really privilege skill teaching. mm at the complete ignorance and discounting of the vast majority of what therapy can do for people.
1: When we were coming through internship and in the young, old, the young days
0: was your, no. Yeah. Well, I, my internship was very, um, I don't know, floppy. I would say <laughs> it didn't have a lot of it, it. Cause it, it actually emerged out of a group practice. So it was a group practice in federal way of like five to 10 therapists. And then they're like, hey, we should create an agency. And then they created an agency and they continued to see a lot of people for private pay. And they're like, well, people are asking us for medical coupons. So they started to look into that. Right. So I came in at that point. okay, And then, uh, so it was very loose. You know, there wasn't a lot of, our paperwork was very loose. Yeah. Our policies were very loose, you know. And so, and my, my supervisor was extremely hands-off you know, she's just like, "Well, what do you think is going to help?" You know, she was just very encouraging in that way. Um, what about you? I mean, you were at more of a—I was at a adult outpatient mental health clinic
1: that worked with um, many folks with chronic mental illness, and then, um, what, what, oh, who was that, the population? Essentially, poor people, most of whom had trauma histories and were on, you know, public assistance.
0: What about the? formalization of skills and paperwork and all that stuff.
1: There was paperwork that um, we could ignore. We still had to fill out. I kept it out of the sessions. I did it on my own. I got so I could just check boxes
0: and fill things in and get it so that it would go away. And to be clear, this is the mid-90s when we didn't have computers at these offices. Oh, yeah, no.
1: no. But there was a lot of, um, since that's all government, um, you know, state government contracted Whatever they have, their fingers in the pie, and their whoever they consult about this stuff has their own ideas about what is good treatment, and you know that doesn't have anything to do with the person sitting in front of me necessarily, right? Because there isn't a one size fits. It's all. a
0: hoop you jump through to get funding.
1: It is a hoop you jump through to get funding, and so you know you learn to jump through the hoops. And they were behaviorally oriented treatment plans that we all got really good at um, bullshitting.
0: Yeah, I mean to be clear it wasn't fraud. We were, it was real. Right. But it was just a percentage of emphasis that we had in our sessions.
1: Small. Yeah. (laughs) Small percentage.
0: All right. Let's take a break before someone complains about us to the licensing boards. And uh, (laughs) we'll, uh, uh, when we come back, we'll talk about more things in the news. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. All right, we're back from the break. Again, if you want to hire Bob, a lot of people ask about it. They're just like, man, that guy has a great voice. seems like an awesome therapist. Thank you. Go to bobgettle.com. That's bobgettle, G-O-E-T-T-L-E.com. And you can hire him if you're in the Seattle area. Uh, Next article here is from a uh, Todd Essig. What celluloid shrinks tell us about psychotherapy today? So in other words, like, therapists who are in tv and movies Huh. and he writes of course he holds his ground uh that's what's expected um but that was then not now contrast that with so so he's so he writes about how there was a movie in the 60s about a therapist who was being pressured to talk about what was what was going on in his sessions with a particular person and hmm. the therapist held his ground and said you know confidentiality. I'm not going to tell you anything, and that that was kind of part of the plot.
1: Who was asking? Do we know?
0: Uh, I don't know. Okay, it was in a movie. Yeah, uh, the president's analyst, James Coburn, played uh, the president's analyst. So I think like oh, the FBI it. was like asking. Yeah. You know. Um, but that was in this is now contrast that with three shrink portrayals currently streaming. Doug Stamps Doug Stamper's therapist in the Last House of Cards. This. Uh The the solid... Do you watch House of Cards? No. Um, The solid Aryan Jungian psychoanalyst, Dr. Daniel Ryan, in the third season of The Man in the High Castle. Do you watch that show? I watched the first season. I didn't watch anything beyond. Uh, And I watched the first episode, and I was like, this looks interesting, but it's not really grabbing me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Julia Roberts character in Homecoming. I watched that. Oh, you did? Yeah. What did you think of the Julia Roberts character?
1: Um, I liked her in some ways, yeah. and um, in other ways I did not. And I did she portray if I say like more, a
0: good version of it? You're gonna break the. You're gonna I don't want to spoil, spoil it. it. But does she portray us well? Better than most, I'll okay. say that. Okay, well, that's good. Um, each of these three therapist counselors, were active conduits sharing supposedly private information with agents of political, governmental, or corporate power. Yeah. For each of them, the plot hinged on not respecting the confidentiality that used to be at the core of the psychotherapy relationship. A lack of privacy now is taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Expectations for privacy have really changed, mostly because privacy in psychotherapy has really changed. It's being eroded. What do you think about that, Bob? I'm
1: not aware of that at all.
0: I anecdotally agree with this. So I will talk. I mean, well, you tell me, Bob. scary. When when we were in graduate school and and young therapists— was it understood that confidentiality reigned and there were extremely rare circumstances under which we would actually break that confidentiality yeah you know tarasov yeah uh yeah yeah you don't like it was really rare it was like the assumption is you don't talk to anyone other than your client about any yeah. of this stuff well well supervision consultation groups yeah that sort of thing but mandated reporting yeah that duty to protect um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, but I remember really internalizing that notion, but I don't know if I just took to it or what, because now when I talk to students who have taken ethics classes, by the way, yeah, and I'll, and you know, there'll be some scenario, like some supervisee will present on a case and they'll be like, you know, so I have this teenage kid and he has a gun hidden in his bedroom you know he has a gun and i'll be like okay has he threatened anybody no he just says it makes him feel safe um has he threatened to kill himself do you think he's going to kill himself no he's not suicidal um okay and they're like so i should call the cops right i should or i should tell the parents right or i should i should tell the, the the teachers right that he has a gun like what do you think about that impulse
1: well legally i don't i don't, what's the legal age for owning a gun let's that's a side issue uh
0: let's say it's illegal for the child to have the gun well,
1: It's illegal for kid to have weed too or booze, and it happens. I don't think that I think that you make yourself liable if you divulge
0: not only that, but isn't therapy a confidential relationship like right listen uh, to me where in your disclosure statement does it say um the relationship is, you know, confidential unless I hear about you having a gun illegally. <laughs> like, just because it scares you yeah, that a 16-year-old has a gun yeah, uh, doesn't indicate, one, that there's danger, and two, that it rises to the level where you have justification for breaking that confidentiality. But I find that a lot of people will be like, but, but in fact, I bet you anything there's listeners out there right now Other clinicians, even who are just like, well, aren't you supposed to report like dangerous things? Like, isn't that what you're supposed to do? Um, There are exceptions to the confidentiality for sure. That you you could make a justification for telling the parents, for example, or even telling the police if you had enough data that uh, was that indicated that something really dangerous was going to happen, and the 16-year-old kid probably wouldn't have much power to fight back or even know that he could fight back yeah. if, you, if you if he was really upset that you did say anything. But I find it really alarming that a lot of novice therapists, a lot of young people, and, and really even, frankly, experienced therapists, they just assume, like, well, of course you're going to tell someone about that. Like, there's no debate in their mind. Um, and there's no, like, awareness of the fact that this is not one of those exceptions. That yeah. In fact, there are clear <laughs> guidelines around, like, uh, unless it fits these criteria, then you don't tell yeah. other people about it. Um, again, y- you probably could, if you, you know, like you could make a report and say like, given his behavior, impulsive beh- behavior that he exhibited in other arenas, him having an, ag- and having emotional issues, even though he hasn't made a threat to other people. And even though he doesn't exhibit any suicidal ideation, it's my professional opinion that he this is this rises enough to you know a danger to himself and other people that he has a loaded gun in his house um, you know you could make you could probably make that and and not be successfully sued by him for having broken that confidentiality, but at the same time, if we're going to help people, yeah, they need to fucking trust us yeah, <laughs> and if we just turn around and tell on them every time we think they're doing something quote unquote bad, yeah. then they're not gonna get any help. You're so much more helpful talking to him and being like, so why do you feel like you need a gun? You know? Well, da well, what else is going on in your life? You know, what else are you afraid of? Um what would it what other kinds of things could you do besides having a gun that would make you feel safer? Maybe advocating for yourself or I don't know. Maybe it's actually functional to have a gun. A lot of people have guns for functional reasons, so to speak, you know? Um, are you getting sa- trained in safety around a gun, you know? Uh, when you get angry, what do you do? Like, how? Yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. Um, rather than telling the police, your client hates you and never goes to another therapist again for the rest of his life. Right. Like, let's look at the pros and cons there. And that's kind of a severe example. Like, sure. like less severe examples would be like, um, I don't know, uh, a kid talks about having jumped another kid at school. Right. Like he and a friend like beat the crap out of another kid at school with mm-hmm. their fists. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, that feels like something you're supposed to report. Mm. It is not. It isn't. You do not report that. Nope. Now, again, you probably could make a justification for it. Like Well, he, that's you, the problem with it, though,
1: is that you could make a justification for it, which represents a fundamental misunderstanding of your duty. And right. your ethical you know, mandate.
0: And the purpose of confidentiality, which is that yes. if someone is troubled and they're doing troubling things, what a wonderful opportunity that person has to be able to say, to talk about all of that with someone who cares and yeah. someone who can actually help them without worrying that they're going to get in trouble Yeah, That's a very – we want that as a society. That's why it exists. That's why it exists. You know, there's a tension between that and like, well, we also want justice and we we also want want, freedom of information and safety. Yeah. And so we want therapists to be able to tell on their clients, right? But a much bigger want is that these people get the help that they need so they can stop doing these things. Right. So –
1: so this person in this article is writing that uh, confidentiality is being eroded by this kind of um, um, arbitrary self-copying?
0: Right. So, huh. well, I, I don't know exactly the vector here. The author is saying that these depictions in movies and TV of therapists breaking confidentiality is either... Contributing to the eroding of our notion of confidentiality mm -hmm. um, as a profession and maybe as a society. Yeah, right. um, Or it's a manifestation of the erosion that's happened over time.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And and I actually, it does alarm me sometimes when I talk to novice therapists and they seem to not understand that they need to be baseline assuming confidentiality and only break that under very careful, very specific circumstances, you know. It seems like right away they'll be like, well, of course I report it. Aren't you supposed to report stuff like that? And it's like, never enters their mind, like confidentiality first, you know. So, anyway. That's scary that that's the case. Uh, Another article here, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Do, According to a Psychotherapist and Best-Selling Author. Hmm. uh, Written by Amy Morin on CNBC Make It. Thirteen things. They don't compare themselves to other people. What do you think about that one? Uh,
1: I don't. I don't like the basis so far of this article that oh, I'm why? hearing. Because is is it? I don't know, man. It's I don't know. That's like she's got this uh, agenda or something. I don't know. Something about I can't articulate it, but there's something about this that's making me uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go through them and see if you can articulate it. Number All two, right. they don't insist on perfection. Number three, so these are qualities of mentally strong women. Okay. Uh, three, they don't see vulnerability as a weakness. Number four, they don't let self-doubt stop them from reaching their goals. Number five, they don't overthink everything. So is any articulation emerging for you?
1: These sound like, um, well, first off, I don't like things that are stated in the negative. Okay. I like things stated in the positive. And these also sound I remember like-
0: that note from when I would give you my book to edit, you would say... Just state the statement, don't, you know, like be more direct, <laughs> less passive, more... Oh, yeah,
1: I know, like passive voice. Yeah. yeah um, um, plus, you had a lot of very good things to say in your book. and Word, Worded badly. Well, you know, I'm a pretty good editor. Could Anyways, be better worded. Yeah. <laughs> so, Haha, ha, there you go. Um, and so far, the first five are sounding like sound advice for humans.
0: Right, that's my, that was what I took from it. I'm okay. like... I mean, so, you know, 13 things mentally strong women uh, don't do, according to psychotherapists. I mean, these are just things that are good advice for everyone. Like, it's not, it's not particularly uh, women-based, because part, part of the implication here is that men don't compare themselves to other people yeah, as, oh, much, as much as women do.
1: Everybody does. Right.
0: They're, you know, it's a, it's a stereotype that men, men don't are, care. Oh, but, we but are m- islands. My God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but maybe this article is written for women because
1: there's a recognition maybe there's a recognition that you know there's a power differential between men there's a sexist power differential and it might be useful to write things that um validate the experience of women so that they don't undermine themselves that C- said certainly she ain't saying anything that's not universally true
0: so far right you know and and I don't have a problem with it it's just like you know I'm just trying to think if if there was an article like this like you know, thirteen things that Asian Americans do that are good for them, or something. Oh it, wow! You know, it's just like okay, fine. Yeah. Um. But, uh. But it is. It's like, where's what's particular to women about these things? Right. Um. The other thing is, is that uh, it's easier said than done. You know. Oh, that's that's a great point. Right. That's a great point. Right. Just
1: because you said I shouldn't be professionalist, it
0: doesn't mean I'm going to stop. Right. Hey, man! If facts and logic did it. It would have did it. I mean, I guess it's the purpose of the article, you know, like the perfectionist thing. Yeah. But number two, they don't insist on perfection. Although saying I'm a bit of a, of a perfectionist may feel like a badge of honor, true perfectionism will hold you back. Establish high expectations for yourself while also accepting that mistakes are part of the learning process. Uh-huh. So it's not bad advice. No. But But it's a bit simplistic just to, yeah. just to say like, you know... Uh, just change your mind, you know, anyway, I won't yeah. go through the just rest Just stop of procrastinating.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's a good, that's a good idea.
0: Article Psychology Today here, written by David Ludden, PhD, uh, how to stay on task during conflicts with your mate. A pretty long article here, hmm. but it, Uh, He starts by kind of hacking on cognitive therapists here, uh, which I I wanted to hear what your thoughts are. Oh, boy. For the last few decades, cognitive therapists have been teaching their clients to regulate their emotions during conflict in a couple of ways. One approach is emotionally distancing, in which you attempt to step outside yourself to acknowledge your emotions, to acknowledge your emotions are there, but to observe them as an outsider rather than experiencing them in their full force. It takes some practice. But it is possible to distance yourself from your experience in the moment at almost as if you were outside of your body in a process psychologists call dissociation. Which, what? Yeah. <laughs> Where'd this guy go to school? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you had the same reaction. That oh my I did. God,
1: it's outrageous.
0: Yeah. Why is this outrageous?
1: Well, first off, I don't think cognitive therapists
0: encourage dissociation. I don't think any good therapist can encourage dissociation. That's nuts. Right. Well, let's, do, let's drill down on that one. All right. Uh, you know, one, you can't prescribe dissociation. <laughs> yeah. Disso- dissociation is something you acquire yeah. or retain from childhood trauma, yeah. or uh, actually, all people dissociate mildly. Yeah, yeah, mildly. Like, but but we wouldn't use that term. No, hell no. When, dissociation is a bad thing. Yeah. You know, it's actually you know in this context something that really causes a lot of distress for people. So well, we wouldn't call it dissociation. If anything, we would just call it like. Trying to observe your emotions. Yeah, yeah.
1: Observe your emotions, step back within, not without. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so,
1: first off, the, as the assertion that therapists do
0: this right. is disturbing. Right. Um, and also, like, so he goes on with the, basically the yeah. thesis of his article is that mindfulness is the way to go. And there's okay. research looking into that, you know, yeah, yeah. how to mindfully be aware of your emotions, accept them. Uh, let them come, observe them. Sure. Let them go. Yep. You know, let well, them pass through you. Yeah, right. Don't fight it. Also, don't hand yourself over to it. You know, sure. Um, which essentially is what cognitive therapists are doing. You know, yeah. Depending on the delivery that a cognitive therapist sure. would deliver, presuming competent, what? Presuming it's competent
1: delivery, right. they're going to coach.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of cognitive therapists that I would imagine if you just looked at them. And watch them, you know, work with someone. They might look like they're actually talking about mindfulness, even though they wouldn't frame they it may that not way.
1: Say those words, yeah. Right?
0: Now, there's plenty of cognitive therapists that are not competent at sort of <laughs> knowing the nuance of these kinds of things, and treat things like it's a choice, like True. just you know, okay, uh, you come home, right. and your husband is, you know, being very distant and you ask him for, you know, you're trying to talk with him about uh, chores and he hasn't done any chores in the house for many months and he's just playing video games all day and your kids are running around and you you go to your room and you cry. Yeah. Well, just distance yourself from your emotions.
1: You oh, know? God, what an <laughs> awful idea. Yeah,
0: like uh, if you're sort of, Hardcore incompetent cognitive therapist, someone who's sort of unaware of the context or something, then yeah, it could, that technique can actually be quite bad. But if you're talking about like, uh, um, you're having an argument or in that situation uh, that I described, it's like, okay, well, observe your emotion, you know, because you observe a pattern in this person who, has, you know, a distant, irresponsible husband and kids running around, and she has a lot of responsibilities, yeah. she goes to her room, she cries, you, you you realize as a therapist there's a pattern where she basically just stays in her room for yeah. long periods of time and um, is demoralized and, and then feels shameful about it and all this kind of stuff. Right. And so you could imagine having a technique with her. There would be lots of different techniques, sure. including like how to assert herself, but if you're just looking on the emotional side, you, right. could, you, could, you could imagine saying like, well, so when you go into your room, I hear from you, you wish you could be more productive at night, you know, at the very least spending time with your kids. What if you just observed the emotion as it's, it's, it is sad, because it is sad. Yeah. It's a real I mean, I mean, anyone in your position would be sad and frustrated. So that's real. That's happening. Sure. But at the same time, you know, just sort of experience it, let it happen. Don't, don't, don't indulge in it. Don't dive into it. You know, just naturally let the sadness happen mm-hmm. and then just see maybe if it lasts for a shorter amount of time. You know, don't fight it. You know, maybe call someone. To, I don't know. This is really sounding horrible as I'm talking.
1: Well, about it. actually, no, I, I'm with you. And then I'm thinking, well, what something might be going along with sadness here is a, perhaps a great deal of shame because there's a hiding of this sadness from, you know, family, people that, are, presumably love and care for us, right? A husband who may uh, not be attentive in the way that, you know, anybody would want, uh, maybe got problems, but but um, I'm hiding from my partner. I'm hiding in the bedroom. I'm hiding my sadness. So maybe I could observe the impulse to hide, the impulse to go into my room. Maybe I want to disobey that impulse by staying still or by staying out and where the public spaces are, um, and it's going to come on me. I'm probably going to feel worse before I feel better if I feel better, um, but there might be, you know, would I be thinking about the utility of disobeying the the uh, impulse of shame? I could see that, and I'm I'm I love mindfulness, but that's really what that is. Is right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Do you find that people who talk about mindfulness that are super into it? annoy you?
1: Well, you know, it's the current buzz in our field is mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. So, yeah.
0: But have you ever... So, I'm saying I have... Oh,
1: wait, wait. People that talk about mindfulness?
0: No. Oof. Well, people who are like... So, so let me give you an example yeah. of what annoys me. They will, you know, will be talking about, I don't know, something clinical or, I don't know, maybe even not. And they'll just be like, so, do you use... Do you do mindfulness? Uh-huh. Or... Do, do you use mindfulness with your with your clients? And I'll be like, um, I like it, but no, I don't usually use it. Oh, my God. You know, evidence shows oh, no. that it is powerful, yeah. you know, to... And then they'll explain mindfulness to me, and I'll just be like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> like, I, I do a lot of things in therapy, uh, yeah. and yeah, I, I totally get that mindfulness works. But sure. there's just a certain sort of um, enthusiasm of like... Oh it's the only thing that you should be doing or something. Have you experienced that before?
1: Oh, yeah, but not just in the field of, you know, counselors who are learning something. Like, a lot of people do this, and certainly I've had my sophomore moments where I've been soapboxing, and soapboxing is fucking annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, but one of the things I've noticed about mindfulness is it's a very easy thing and an interesting thing to talk about that has nothing to do with the actual practice of it.
0: Oh, what do you mean? Like
1: people can talk about their mindfulness practice or talk about the importance of mindfulness and not be doing it, you know, like actually practicing mindfulness. Practicing mindfulness is actually quite challenging and really um, uh, provocative. What do you mean? Why? Well, I'll just speak for myself uh, as an example. When I slow down, when I'm still, one of the things that emerges for me is a great deal of anxiety and a great deal of shame. Mm. So when I'm still, those things come forth for me. If I get still... I noticed them, you know, in pretty much any aspect of my life that I could imagine.
0: Those and are the thoughts that pop into your head. Those kind
1: of feelings emerge. And, and I the said something with stupid. Me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why did I do that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes really old stuff,
0: like cringing at stuff I did years ago. No one loves me.
1: Well, occasionally that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm so, alone.
0: Yeah. Why Why aren't my relationships stronger right. or something?
1: Okay. Right. And and so talking about mindfulness as a really important skill is... yeah. Sure. And then doing it, you
0: know... Right. Yeah, it's funny. I th- There's been people that I can actually... I can totally think of years ago who were like this, and I knew for a fact they didn't actually do mindfulness themselves. God, was I one of them? No, no. Oh, thank God. No, no. You've never been one of those people. Uh, and if you were, I'd lie to you right now.
1: Uh, God just bless joking. you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't you. It wasn't you. It actually happens rarely. I'm, I'm just like... It's, it I I guess now when I think about it it's like mindfulness is one of those things that a lot of people talk about but very very rarely is it actually done yeah as you're saying but I also find that um, everyone knows about it but yeah. like only a select few of people are really into it you uh-huh. know oh um, yeah yeah right I mean I actually have a colleague a friend of mine who um, uh, Deborah Hatton, do you remember her? She she bought Mary Hamilton, uh, her business.
1: Oh oh, big uh, uh, vague, working, vague working choices. Yeah yeah
0: yeah, um, and she, at least years ago, used a lot of mindfulness in her practice. But yeah. she was totally not annoying about it. And yeah, didn't preach about Proselytize. it. Or, yeah. yeah, thank God. Anyway, one more article here by Jean Marbella. Uh, from the Baltimore Sun. Psychotherapist seeks to overturn Maryland's ban on conversion therapy. Whoa. A psychotherapist filed a federal lawsuit seeking to overturn Maryland's ban on treating minors with conversion therapy, which is a controversial practice that attempts to change clients' sexual orientation. So just chime in here. It's not a controversial practice. It's not controversial. Yeah. uh, to, To say controversial implies there's a controversy. There's not a controversy. No. It's vast, vast consensus that... Uh, conversion therapy is horrible, you know you don 't say there 's a current controversy that smoking causes bad problems with your health yeah that 's not a controversy that 's not a controversy. There that, are people who deny it, yeah, and will say that well, a, this is controversial because I have a different opinion that right. does not make it so that does not make it a controversy, yeah. that makes it you know there are moti- there's motivated reasoning among a certain group of people. <laughs> hey, I've been stubborn before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> controversy. <laughs> uh, Christopher Doyle sued Governor Larry Hogan and State Attorney General Brian Frosh in U.S. District Court in Maryland, saying the ban violated his rights of to free speech and the practice of religion and the rights of clients to prioritize their religious and moral values above unwanted same-sex sexual attractions, behaviors, or identities. What do you think about this, Bob?
1: That is a false statement. Tell me more. Uh, well, read it again, because I, I, there's some things uh, that stuck out. Uh,
0: the ban violates his rights to free speech and the practice of religion and the rights of clients to prioritize their religious and moral values above unwanted same-sex sexual attractions, behaviors, or identities.
1: Uh, no, he's... He's, no, that's not true. What, what's going on here is not religion. It's, it's um, clinical practice. That is not religion. That's, um, boy, that sure is overlaying something really important.
0: And... Right. So so to be clear, and this is the argument of those who will ban it, yeah. is that uh, you're free to practice your religion. Yeah, go for it. But you, if your religion interferes with evidence and clinical practice and ethics... Then, then we have a problem. you we have a big so, problem. So you know, if if a physician has a religion, like say that for whatever reason there's a physician who's a Christian scientist, sure, you know that's probably happened at some point. <laughs> and every patient that comes to them, they're like, you know, just go home and pray. Yeah. God will save you. That's not okay. Like, you're, you're, you're free to be a Christian scientist. Yeah, go for it. But you're not practicing a religion at that point. You're practicing medicine. Right. And that and, is different. Right. And if you're a consumer and you want to not go to the doctor because you have an illness, then that sure. is, you can practice your religion in that way. Yep. It's, but if you're a physician, as endorsed by, you know, uh, licensing boards right. and professional organizations, right. then you have a duty to uphold the professionalism and the evidence thereof. Yeah. right? And so we have decided, and through massive amounts of research yeah, and discussion, yeah. that conversion therapy is harmful to people. Yeah. One, because outcomes show that yeah. it's, it, people enter those things and come out with, extru- with uh, in general, much more symptoms of suicide, of depression, anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. Shame. Um, two, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't make you not gay. It does not. Yeah. Uh, or not trans or something. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the evidence shows like it's it's in the same way that you, a physician can't use leeches to bleed you, uh, actually, or unless there's a legitimate reason for it. Right. (laughs) Uh, but say you have depression uh, or cancer and they use, you know, them to bleed you, then, you know you can't do that and yeah. you can make you can pass laws that's that you know the only reason why they pass these laws is because it's being practiced like yeah it it shouldn't be practiced in the first place no. you know we don't have a lot of laws di- like there's not a lot of there's not a law in Washington state that says you must treat your clients with respect right yeah there's no law like that because most therapists agree and understand that that's what you're supposed to do sure we don't have laws for a lot of things but there was there's a problem in our society and you have a a minority a very small minority of therapists who consider it totally legitimate practice to do conversion therapy and yeah. so it's like we gotta put an end to that we gotta pass a law anyway yeah anything more to say about that depressing topic
1: that is depressing there was something but it flew out of my head so
0: sorry no no nothing to be sorry about this one sucks yeah uh very similar case here psychotherapist sues New York City so last one was Maryland Yeah This therapist is suing New York City for prohibiting gay conversion therapy Oh On Wednesday a devoutly orthodox Jewish psychotherapist who is represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom filed a federal lawsuit against the City of New York over its new ordinance preventing therapists from treating patients who want to follow their religious faith and rid themselves of unwanted sexual desires such as sex attractions Uh, same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria they note notably the law only prohibits counsel in one direction assisting a patient who desires to reduce same-sex attraction or achieve comfort in gender identity that matches his or her physical body by contrast counseling that steers a patient toward gender identity different than his or her physical body is permitted Um, so just commenting on that what do you think bob Uh
1: well There's something about it that's disturbing that
0: I can't quite get my fingers on. Well, maybe it's this. No therapist counsels someone to be gay. (laughs) Right. No therapist counsels someone to be trans. Right. You're only counseling someone as they are emerging from their own trans identity or gay identity. Right. Or you're helping them to accept the fact that they are gay or trans. Yeah. So this implies like therapists are... Are you know? There's you know, in this direction, we're pushing people, and, and so therefore, other people should be allowed to push them back. Right? You know, there's just so many things wrong with it with the thing. Well, um, how would it
1: be different? Because it would be, you know, um, uh, for folks that have pedophilic uh, sexual orientation, isn't that? Isn't that? I don't know if I'm saying it the right the way that it's talked about. Uh, what? Where did you say? Pedophilic sexual yeah. orientation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. What's treatment for them look like? Because it's probably not about... It's probably not... It's about not acting on behavior, but the difference is that the behavior of a pedophile is harmful to
0: somebody else, whereas, you know, if you're gay,
1: you know...
0: Right. Nobody getting hurt. Right, exactly. So the thing here is that uh, we have a society that teaches people that there's something wrong with them when there isn't something wrong with them. Right. And so then they go to therapy to fix something that they think is wrong with them when there isn't anything wrong with them. Right. And that's a problem. You know, imagine if we as a society uh, taught that um, to want to have long hair or something or to uh, like to have tattoos or something is somehow pathological and you're going to go to hell and you want to grow your hair out. but you know, it's just, and so you end up yeah. going to therapy so you can avoid growing yeah. your hair out. Yeah. We would say to that, like, well, there's nothing wrong with growing your hair out. Like, we need to, that's the problem. We don't need to fix people who want to have their hair long. We need yeah. to fix society. We need to stop, let's just stop doing this and let's try to fix society so no one comes to our office in the first place. That's
1: We're a sure. clear identification of where the problem is. And right. the problem here is homophobia.
0: Right. Not. Um, I'm gay. Right, and and I have a hard time about it. You know what I mean? But it is kind of interesting because, you know, I've talked about this before, but I essentially did conversion therapy without knowing it many years ago. You did? Well, I had a client who came, you know, early, way before I started being a therapist, I shed all conscious homophobia and heterosexism that I could, you know what yeah. I mean? It was, um, so that was not a problem, but I had a client come to me about 10 years into my career who was gay uh-huh. and he was married with kids. And he said that he didn't want to have gay impulses or behavior huh. anymore because, um, and so I, I said, well, that's interesting. He's why he's like, well, I'm married. I love my family. I love my kids. And I, I love my wife, and I don't. I don't want to divorce. You know, I don't want to lose that life. And at first, I'm like, "Well, maybe you can have everything. You know, you can have your cake and eat it too. I mean, maybe you could be gay, and maybe eventually have a relationship, a long term relationship with a male, or or not, whatever. But get that need met, and also have a, a relationship with your wife. Maybe she's an ex wife. I don't know." And you parent your kids together. Like, there, there's a way to do that. And so, you know, we'd go round and round and round on that. But eventually, after months of this, he's just like, no, I need you to help me to not, because I'm starting to have impulses to cheat on my wife. You know what I mean? I'm starting to have all these impulses to go outside of my marriage and have sex with men. And I, I don't want to do that. I want to stay in my marriage. I want to be, I don't, I like having sex with my wife. I'm okay with it. I, I'd much rather have sex with men, but I'm okay having sex with her and blah, blah. blah. And you know it was very uncomfortable to me because I just, but I could, you could see the conundrum, right? Yeah, you could, you know, especially if for whatever reason he can't accept or doesn't want to go down a path of divorce and all that kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah, I could understand not wanting to have a divorce and you know have that massive change in life. Right. Sure.
0: Right. And so he asked me to help him to have less impulse t- to have sex with men. How'd it go? Um. I forget, honestly. It was yeah. a long time ago. A long ago. time ago, yeah. Uh, I don't think it worked. Yeah, you know? I imagine, <laughs> imagine it did not. I mean, it, what it came down to was, I think what I landed on, if I remember right, was, look, I think you have to accept the fact that you're attracted to men. Yeah. Like, I don't think like, that that's something that is worth or, you know, gonna work fighting against. So let's just, let's just accept that. But obviously, you can control what you do with your body you know, and True. who you have sex with, like, that's something you can choose to do um, if you really want to, because that, that was that whole other conversation. It was like, well, what do you really want out of this? You know, are you denying a part of yourself? Do you have internalized homophobia that's sort of routing you in a particular way? And um, so mm-hmm. it was a very complicated conversation. And my point is, is like when we yeah. talk about conversion therapy, the classic examples are horrible, like where Kids are forced into conversion therapy yeah. camps by their parents or something. Right. That's that's horrible. Or you have a you know a trans person that lives in a very transphobic community, and they just feel so shameful and awful oh, about yeah. themselves. And then they you know in their community there's a conversion therapist, and they go to that person. Sure. Um, these are horrible situations. Um, but there are nuanced situations where it gets a little harder to figure out what's happening and and whether or not it even is conversion therapy. Well, you're
1: you're not describing conversion therapy. You're describing um, accepting, okay, you're going to be attracted to men. I think conversion therapists try to shift a person's, you
0: know, uh, who
1: they're attracted to.
0: Don't they? Right, the idea is is that you can, like a pedophile, you can sort of break someone of their orientation and change it. You know what I mean? I don't think you can break a pedophile. Uh, there's not a lot of research on that, and yeah. I forget the research. Yeah. Um, but I think you can actually, for, for some people, you can actually alter or expand their horizons a little bit. Expand their sexual orientation to include... Um, people their own age. People their own age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the details on that but plus some people are attracted to kids because of quote unquote an orientation meaning it's just sort of like in their bones so to speak yeah. which is of course impossible to prove but it seems that way. Yeah. And other people are are attracted to kids because of other reasons like they don't feel their maturity uh, they don't feel like they're they feel their maturity level is kids. Like they feel like a child. Yeah. Like um, Michael Jackson might have been someone like yeah, that. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Like he might have actually because the way he talked, he talked like and acted like he was a child. Yeah. And he might have actually felt like other kids were his peer. Yeah. You know, and, and to to have sex with an adult might have felt really weird to him. That's complete speculation. Yeah. Of yeah. Course. It's
1: speculation because because kids kids aren't really engaging. Well, I mean, sexual experimentation, but it's usually. There's a difference in kids' sexual experimentation and an adult's body and the way it responds. It's really not the
0: same. But if you consider yourself a 10-year-old, it. Get it. then you're going to, I don't know. And you have a man's body and a man's like yeah. hormones or whatever. Anyway, that uh, shit scares the hell out of me, man. Yeah. Uh, last one here. Business Insider writes here. There's a psychotherapist, Jonathan Alpert, writes about how uh, th- he thinks therapy is kind of bullshit. Oh. So he, he's a therapist himself. Oh, uh, many patients huh. attend therapy for longer than they need. Hmm. He says. What do you think about that one? Well, how, how do how do you def- define longer than you need? Right. Uh, but have you heard this sentiment before by like CBT people and mm-hmm. other and other brief therapist People do you hear? Yes, that? yes, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They'll just be like, oh, people are addicted to therapy. Yeah. Here.
1: Like what is what is that?
0: Yeah. They'll accuse therapists essentially of like you know for self serving reasons like keeping people in therapy. Well.
1: Well, now actually, I think there's something to that. Sure. Humans are just set up to serve themselves. Right. And so when you engage somebody as a client, uh, when you take on a client, you do indeed take on something that's reinforcing for you. Right. So, you know, I think actually it is a dilemma that if you're wise, you know, you keep your eyes on.
0: Yeah. As a therapist, you keep your eyes on the countertransference or the self-serving yeah. yes. urge that you might want to keep someone at therapy longer than, right. than they need to be. Um but often what I find that th- these accusations are uh, based on is this notion that, you know, they're into their brief form of therapy, you yeah. know, which is great. They like what they like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they attract a certain kind of client who is interested in brief therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I, as a long-term therapist, yeah. tend to get people who yeah. are really interested in tackling things that require long periods of time. Yeah, You know, you experienced a, a whole lifetime of trauma, particularly early in life of relational traumas. And you don't really know who you are and you don't, you're not really connected with yourself. Yeah. You don't value yourself. You're very confused by your emotions day in and day out. Yeah. You're very confused about your impulses and your trust issues. And you've created a life where you're, you know, you're quite upset. You're quite emotionally reactive or too independent or, or too dependent.
1: Yeah.
0: And, it's been forty years of that, and you know, five sessions ain't going to do anything to that. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I can teach you a little bit, you know, sure, some emotional regulation skills. Yeah, but sifting through all those things, and plus, there's you know, with my couples, for example, uh-huh. all the couples. I can't remember the last couple that terminated. Well, no, I had a I had a couple uh, terminate with me a few months ago, saying that. All they needed was five or ten sessions, and it, it actually had sort of set them on a good direction. They didn't need help anymore. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, great. But a lot of the couples that I see, um, I see like once a month because they need that space to have that conversation and to do incremental uh, adjustments, incremental changes as yeah. they go through life. And right. if they don't come to therapy for a few months, they'll kind of drift back yeah. to old patterns. Yeah. And so what this Jonathan Alpert is saying is just like apparently – that's not valid or something, you know?
1: Well, he has a confirmation bias, right? Yeah.
0: He also writes, when therapists let, let, when therapists let their parents vent, sorry, when therapists let their patients vent about their problems for a long time, it can leave the patient feeling better, but it won't lead to meaningful changes in behavior. What do you think about that one?
1: Yeah, I, uh, well, I don't like the term vent.
0: Um, why, what I've been thinking. Why of, don't you like the word bet? I think it's dismissive. Interesting.
1: I think. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Let's see. I'm, I want to put this clearly because this has actually been something I've been thinking about very carefully for about the last year and uh, in particular the last three months, which is when people come in, sometimes they are locked into either addressing something, you know, as if therapy is a task uh, or, um, you know, or, or, or they're invested in a narrative you know, a narrative um, and there's something. So, so I think of that as content, right? And what I focus on these days is process. What's the process of you and me sitting together and having this conversation. So recently somebody came in and they were telling me um, a very detailed story about something in their job and their job is something that is very idiosyncratic. And so their experience of it is not relatable to, you know, people who don't do that kind of work. Right. And the story uh, was very detailed and I'm sitting and I'm listening and I'm thinking, what's going on between us right now? And I wouldn't call what she was doing was venting, but we talked about the, the impulse to share the narrative in great detail. She was recognizing that that's actually something that she does. And, um, um, Uh, We started talking about what are you hoping for? What is it that you're wanting here? And we hit on something that was so tender and really just so touching. She said something like she's not allowed to be proud of herself Mm. and she's not allowed to talk about it. But the facts are she is proud and she wanted us to appreciate her good effort. This thing that she does that's really mind blowing. It really is mind blowing what she what she has learned to do. And we ended up talking not a bit about the actual work event and about that longing and desire that's within her now if you want to call getting lost in the content venting okay i don't like that term and if you want to think about if he's talking about well what's the process of the thing happening then yeah i i agree with what he's saying i don't like the way he's saying it um because i think that there is value in that i've experienced that personally and also professionally
0: yeah it's a beautiful story thanks I think what he's referring to, based on the gestalt of his message, is that. Ther- so the next one should perhaps should light on it. Instead, he said therapists should use their time to push patients to reach their goals. Hmm. So, so essentially, you know, his form of therapy, which isn't invalid, yeah, is that or unvalid, not valid, no, um, invalid, yeah, is that he, his style of therapy is people come in and, and he's like what do you want to work on? What do you want to change? You know, what do you want to do? And then uh, they work on that. And if the client starts to vent, he's like, well, wait a second. You know, let's bring it back to what you're here to do. Let's focus on the task at hand. You know, does it help to, to do that? Or does it help to really focus on your goals and figure out what you want to do? I'm going to hold you to what you want to do. Mm. Um, You know, maybe that works for people. Maybe. Sounds abrasive. But But, you know, and maybe people dig that kind of therapy. But a lot of people, if I did that with my clients that Mm. I'm seeing right now, it just wouldn't work. I'm just here to tell you. Oh, my God, no. And I find that these sentiments are everywhere in our society. You know, it's just like people are addicted to therapy and venting doesn't help. And I'm like, yes, it does. Yeah. Like complaining about things that are bothering you in Mm -hmm. life is a wonderfully curative, helpful thing. When you are, uh, when someone flips you off on the freeway because you didn't do anything wrong and you come home and you complain to your spouse about that and you're like I can't believe that asshole on the road and your spouse is like oh my god I can't believe that asshole I'm so sorry let's hug that is a wonderful stabilizing uh, validating encouraging uh, thing that will balance you out and put you on your day if you don't complain and it festers inside of you then that's bad and you just you just pile up all the shitty things that happen in people's lives and you know sometimes people have a lot of things they have to get off their chest yeah Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it.